1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. God God brought a child to a woman who had been barren for many years. His name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. He was a child sent from God to go before the coming Messiah, the chosen Savior of the world. Then, Jesus the Christ was born to Mary, a young woman betrothed to a carpenter in the city of Nazareth. Thirty years would pass between Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, hearing God say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. At the start of Luke chapter 4, we saw Jesus had fasted for 40 days and nights, being led of the Spirit into the desert wilderness, seeking God. Satan came to tempt Jesus, but ultimately failed to cause Jesus to sin. Jesus returned to his hometown and taught in the synagogue he usually attended. He declared that the Messiah would come down as prophesied about in Isaiah. Jesus is that Messiah that Isaiah spoke about. But the scribes and Pharisees were greatly angered by Jesus' words. It went against everything they thought about the Messiah, for the Christ to come down to suffer and die. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 4, verse 24. But Jesus,
0: he's trying to shake up their salvation ideology. What he says here, truly I say unto you, no prophet, nobody who speaks for God is accepted, welcomed, is acceptable, finds favor. It's the same word in verse 19 to preach uh, the acceptable year of the Lord, the season of grace. In other words, I say unto you that nobody speaking for God finds welcome or finds grace in his own homeland. Now, that's akin to blasphemy. You say, why? Well, it was a common saying in Israel on that day that, quote, to live in the promised land is equal to the observance of all the commandments. So the rabbis taught the Talmud taught, He that has his permanent abode in the land is sure of the life to come. All you gotta do is live there. The rabbis taught, and I quote, He that dwells in the land is without sin. Do you understand the mindset he's dealing with here? It really doesn't matter if he starts talking to them about their obedience. They're of the belief. What are you talking about? We're God's people, in God's land, we're God's favored. It's not us that needs to change. We're already where we're supposed to be. To say a Jew in the land didn't want to listen to God was akin to blasphemy. How dare you? You better change your tone, mister. You're equating us with the dirty Gentiles who don't care what God says. And yet Jesus isn't done. He knows they're gonna think that. So to prove his point, Jesus reminds them of two times that the people in the land rejected the message of God's prophets. So much so that God found Gentiles to bless instead of Jews because they were the only ones willing to listen to him. Look at verse 25. But I tell you of a truth. You don't, I know you don't believe me about what I just said. I know you think it's blasphemy, but I tell you of a truth. This is true. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent except unto Sarepta, which is Seraphath, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And we know that story. God had sent Elijah to be the prophet to the northern kingdom under King Ahab. They were horribly astray, horribly into idolatry. Jezebel was killing all the prophets of the Lord. So, I mean, it was a bad time. So God sends Elijah to pronounce, there's not gonna be rain for, there won't be any more rain. And so the land falls into this huge famine. The Lord feeds Elijah through ravens. I mean, just supernaturally takes care of his prophet. But eventually, God tells me, he says, listen, there's this widow up in Seraphath. Now, Seraphath is a city of Zidon. The Sidonians are Canaanites. That's actually Jezebel's home turf. That's where she's from. She is a daughter of the king of Tyre, which is a Sidonian, uh, Tyre, that's the who ruled over Sidon. And so that's her home turf. This is a pagan place. This is a place full of idolatry. She took all that pagan idol worship and brought it to Israel when she married Ahab. So he's sending him to a place where there is, are no believers, generally speaking, and he says, there's a gal up there, she loves me, she trusts me and she's, she's gonna die if you don't come through for her. I want you to go up there and, and she's gonna take care of you too, but I want you to do a miracle. Now what Jesus is saying here, and you know, he goes up and he multiplies the oil and the stuff and, you know, and does a miracle there and he lives with her for a while and, and God takes care of him there. In a pagan land, under a pagan, happens to believe in the Lord. Jesus is telling this story to show them, don't you think there were widows who had needs in Israel? don't you think there are widows in Israel that God wanted to take care of, that wanted to bless? What's the point? Well, he shares one more story to make it. Also, many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha in the King James. That's just the Greek transliteration or Aramaic, I'm sorry, Aramaic transliteration of the name of Elisha, the prophet. That's Elijah's successor. He says, weren't there many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet? And yet none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman, the Syrian. Well, this gets even better. Naaman, the Syrian. Syrians, they are the northern kingdom's mortal enemies, fought many battles with the northern kingdom. And he's a army commander, army captain for the Syrian government. Not only that, but he has defeated Israel numerous times and he's taken Israeli slaves as his servants now. He has this girl who is an Israeli slave. Now her master is a leper. But she's not there by choice. She was taken captive and forced to serve him. And yet when she sees his condition and he's tried all the witch doctors and everybody else in his own country, all the pagan prophets in his country, nobody can help him, she initiates and goes to Kim. Man, talk about the right attitude that we're supposed to have. She doesn't look around her and go, it's everybody else's problem, Lord. You know, I'm fine. She says, no, Lord. What do you want me to do in this situation? Yeah, my situation stinks, but what do you want me to do? And she goes and she evangelizes this guy, because she says to him, She goes, Listen, there's a prophet in Israel who can help you. His name's Elisha. Why don't you go see him? And Naaman goes down, and Elijah tells him, Go dip in the river seven times. And this man who first he's prideful, he's like the Jordan River seven times. And the Jordan's not a big deal. It's a tiny river. And those of you who went to Israel with us, you saw that. <laughs> no big deal. He's like, Aren't there grand rivers where I'm from that I could go dip in? This guy wants me to jump in this stinking river. And so he humbles himself though when he does it and he's healed. And he's so impacted by this experience that he goes and grabs some dirt from the land of Israel, takes it back to Syria with him. And from that dirt, had to be a bunch of dirt, he constructs an altar in his backyard to the Lord. He follows the Lord from that point forward. He goes, don't you think there are other lepers in Israel that could have used some healing? What's the point? There were tons of people in Israel that wanted help, that needed help. And God surely wanted to give it. But why didn't He? Because helping them physically wouldn't have resulted in helping them spiritually. They had rejected God's message and His messengers. And so God sent His messengers to people that would receive it. And those people happened to be dirty Gentiles, not living in the land, but living outside the land. So God sent those prophets to Gentiles who would listen because God loves everyone and wants no one to perish. Now, as you can imagine, this is quite the rebuke from Jesus, and yet it's done with such kindness because what he's communicating to them is that their God is in the business of rescuing those who humble themselves and receive his word, right? So he's trying to bring them back. He's trying to rescue this sermon, okay? Trying to bring them back. If you guys will humble yourselves and chill out for a bit, I've got something awesome to say to you that will change your life. And you know what? I will help you in the same way I've helped the people of Capernaum. But I need to deal with this first. But instead, what do they see? They see a greater blasphemy. See, according to the Pharisees, a Jewish woman wasn't even allowed to help a Gentile neighbor who was about to give birth. God helping Gentiles? Ha, this guy is totally not from God. He's worthy of death, verse 28. And all, note the word all, all they in the synagogue, not some, every single one of them, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath, and they rose up, They thrust him out of their city. They dragged him out of the city and they led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. They brought Jesus outside at the top. Nazareth sits on a hillside and as you go up the hill, right down there's a quarry below, a limestone quarry and they're going to throw him off that. You think, oh, they're going to kill him by throwing him off that. No, it might kill him, but that's not why they're going to do that. When you would stone someone, people didn't just stand there and get stoned, okay? They would run. So you would have to incapacitate them first somehow. And what they would do, this was a common practice in Israel, they would find a hill, throw you off a cliff or off a hill so that you'd break a leg or something, and you could not run. You know, they couldn't just send people to hold you down because then they get hit with stones. So they would throw you off a hill, you'd be incapacitated, injured, you couldn't run, and then they would kill you by pelting you with stones. They're gonna kill him for blasphemy in their mind. Now, how do you go from sensing God's kindness and power to a rage willing to commit murder? Well, when you tell a proud person they're wrong, they're capable of anything. I wish it wasn't true, but there are people that Refused to speak to me now, who I have, I poured my life into, who I counted some of my dearest friends, who I was there for them when their loved ones died, who was there for them when they were in the hospital, was there for them when their children were born. I dedicated their children. I baptized them. I was there for them in any moment they needed me. But at some point in time, I told them, you need to repent about this or this. Or I spoke a message that dealt with their sin and they immediately cut me off. Is that rational? Certainly not rational. Hurts like heck on my end. It's not rational. But that's what happens when you're prideful, when it concerns someone pointing out your sin. This is why God hates pride and self-righteousness. It not only keeps myself from him, but it does harm to others who are trying to rescue me and trying to reason with me and i'd ask you this morning the bible says blessed are the poor in spirit how do you handle it when someone challenges your attitude or your behavior how do you handle it you say well they didn't they didn't rebuke me the right way you know they were they were they weren't they weren't nice okay does that negate the fact that maybe you still stink in that area serious Some of the meanest corrections I've ever received, I've still been able to take something away from it. Some of the most audacious accusations I've had come against me, I've been able to take it to the Lord and take something away from it. Where I say, Lord, is there something I can grab from this? Is there some even ounce of truth, maybe something I can do better through this? I've never, ever regretted that. You know, I've never, ever regretted going to God and going, God, I don't think there's anything to what they're saying, but if there is, show me right now. And God, you know, that was a waste of time. But man, I've done a lot of stupid things in my pride that I wish I could take back. How do you handle it when someone challenges your attitude or your behavior? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, it wasn't time for Jesus to die yet, so he does do a miracle in his hometown. Verse 30, but he passing through the midst of them went his way and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he taught them on the Sabbath days. And They were astonished at his doctrine for his word was with power. Jesus, I don't know what he did, but the fact that they were powerless to stop him proves that he's who he claimed to be. He does a miracle, just not the one they wanted. Because you don't escape a lynching like this. You don't just walk away unscathed. Walk in the midst of them, it says, and he passing through the middle of them. I don't know what he did, but at some point in time, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if Jesus went sci-fi on him and stopped time and just left. Maybe, I don't know. But he did something miraculous here. And so he does do a miracle in their midst, just not the one they wanted. And the sad part, it proves that a miracle wouldn't have helped because this miracle doesn't convince them to repent. When Jesus comes back to Nazareth later on to the town and he preaches there, what's the reaction then? They were all offended because he'd grown up there. Don't we know all your brothers? We know who your mother is. Same reaction. They still haven't repented. And you know what's sad? That attitude is similar to what we're going to see in the tribulation period. How many times do you hear maybe an atheist or an agnostic say, prove to me right now there's a God. Where is he? If he's here, have him reveal himself right here. Well, see, it? guess he's not here. Even as the sun is shining down on their face, as the stars are twinkling in the sky, I guess he's not here. See, the tribulation period, and the book of Revelation covers it, And it says, God will give them exactly what they asked for, but through his judgments. It says that the sky will peel back like a scroll and they'll be able to see into heaven and know that the judgment coming upon them is from the throne and from the lamb who sits on it. For it says, they will cry out and they will say, hide us from the wrath of the lamb who sits on the throne and from his wrath. Though they know where those calamities are coming from, they'll have their proof. Instead of repenting, they'll shake their fist and slander God even more. Pride is so foolish. Pride is so foolish. In Proverbs eighteen twelve, it tells us, it warns us, it warns us lots of times in Proverbs, but I like this one. It says, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. And before honor is humility. You don't get honor by being prideful. Not the honor that counts. And you don't, you know, things don't go well if you're going to be prideful. It will eventually crumble on top of you. Psalm 10.4 says the same thing. It says the wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all of his thoughts. doesn't care what God thinks. I'm gonna do what I think. Pride is so foolish. Well, Jesus... He leaves and he returns to the sea. It says he came down to Capernaum. Capernaum is uh, along the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. So it's in that, that bowl of Galilee, far to the northeast of Nazareth, well below the height of his hometown. So that's why it says he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he taught Uh, them on their sabbath days jesus will make this his home base of operations there in capernaum we know he ends up living uh, most of the time at peter's house that's the closest thing you could say to jesus having a home if you go to israel with us when we go again someday i mean those of you who went with us you saw the excavated remains of that small home eventually they turned peter's home into a small christian church and so they've excavated that in capernaum and and if you go with us you'll see that and if you did you already did see it so pretty cool stuff now, what's of note, though, is not that he lived there, but the people's reaction to the fact that he was a regular rabbi there, a regular teacher, verse 32. And they were astonished. The word there means to be amazed, so amazed that you feel overwhelmed or stunned. They're just blown away. Every, every Sabbath teaching that he's there to teach. They were astonished. And what were they astonished at? All the miracles he did? At his doctrine, which means his teaching. For his miracle was with power. Miracles were with power. For his word, his sermons, his messages, they were with power. The word power means he spoke with authority, with supernatural endowment. Now what a contrast. Jesus speaks, and there's power and authority. The people of Nazareth all grab him and rush him out to kill him. No power, no authority. Right? What a contrast between those two things. There is a power of man. We saw that and we dropped bombs on Assyrian chemical places you know i mean we have a power there is a power there is an authority of man to do things there is a power of man and it it could be powerful but it's nothing when compared to the anointing of god upon a person's life nothing i mean what's going to happen to the the two you know witnesses the two messengers that god sends to israel to preach for three and a half years anybody that harms them the bible says fire is going to come out of their mouth i think man that's 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 that sci-fi well that's crazy that's not going to happen why is it hard for god Like, why would that be hard for God? I can't imagine too many people messing with him after that. You know? I may have given my boss a hard time a few times, but he never fire breathed at me, so there's nothing that compares to the anointing of God upon a person's life. You know, all the power that Satan offered Jesus just a year and a half ago out in that desert, it paled to what God could do with a person who's yielded to his spirit and has purposed obedience in their heart. And I'd ask you this morning as we close, have you done that? You know, is, is the anointing of God upon your life matter more than anything else anybody else could offer you? I want to read to you something that Alan Redpath said that really hit me this week. He said, the Holy Spirit is only able to do his ministry in the world to the extent that he has accomplished it in those of us who are believers. God has chosen us to do his ministry in the world so the Holy Spirit's only going to be able to do that ministry to the extent that he's accomplished it in us. Do we experience his power in our lives to put into action the resolve to do God's will. Satan is resolved to break that determination. The critical moment in the life of us all is when God's word is broken into our hearts and we commit ourselves to obey it. By every possible artifice, Satan will keep us back from that because he knows he is helpless facing a Christian doing God's will. That's powerful. He is. Obedience releases God's authority and anointing, and Satan does everything in his power to thwart our putting it into action. The Christian who is really critical to the devil is the one who is determined to do the will of God at any cost. It is not what happens at the end of our meetings that matter, but it is when that commitment is translated into terms of obedience and daily living that the enemy then becomes anxious and fearful. Have you ever read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? You should if you haven't. It's a great book. The premise of the story is it's Uncle Screwtape. He's a demon, high-ranking demon in Satan's army, and he's writing to his nephew, Wormwood, who's having some problems with his charge, his Christian charge. And so part of the advice he gives to him is this. In one of his letters, he says, do not be deceived, nephew Wormwood. Our cause, in other words, the enemy's cause, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer just desiring, But intending to do God's will looks around upon the universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken, yet still obeys. It's powerful. That's when our enemy trembles. So, what will you have? (laughs) Will you yield to God's spirit and purpose to be obedient to whatever it is that God's telling you to do today? That's how we're going to knock down hell gates. That's how you're going to have an influence and a witness in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood. That's how we're going to change the world. Amen? Amen. Now, what's your response to Jesus' claim? He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the only one who can deal with your sin and he says he wants to help you with it. When Jesus confronted the people he grew up with about their disbelief in God, they critiqued him or they reject him, rejected him even though his words were kind and they spoke of rescuing them. What's your reaction to that? Are you gonna critique him or critique the church or critique Jesus, critique Christianity, critique what things you might see Christians do? Are you gonna reject Christ? Or have you recognized your need to be rescued? Can I give you an exhortation this morning? Don't let pride keep you from your greatest need and the greatest miracle that can ever happen to you. Let's pray. We thank you so much for your great love and your kind words, and I pray I didn't do a disservice to them, Lord, that your kindness came out this morning, that you love us, Lord, and you want to rescue us. But Lord, in that kindness, you spoke to them about their pride, that they thought they were fine. And Lord, we don't want to make that mistake. Lord, there may be some of us here today, we have a relationship with you, but maybe there's been an area that we've been stubborn about. Other people maybe have brought things to our attention. Maybe it's a relationship we shouldn't be in. Or maybe it's a career that's holding us back. Or maybe it's a, you know, if, if back in our walk with you or ministering to our families. Or maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's, we think my spouse is the problem. It's not me, it's my spouse. Maybe you, you've sent people into their lives, Lord, but they've been stubborn. Lord, help them right now to see that that's been you. or that I need to focus on what I need to change, not what everybody else needs to change. And that you're here this morning to rescue me from me. Lord, as people are telling you that, they see that, Lord, and they're making those fresh commitments to be obedient to you, Lord. Will you forgive them? And will you fill them with your spirit and empower them to walk it out? Every eye closed, every head bowed. Maybe you're here today and you want to stop being rebellious to the Lord. You you say, I want to, I want to follow Jesus. I want, to, I want him to rescue me. Would you just lift your hand up because I'd like to pray with you this morning if you'd like to do that. Anybody this morning, you say, I want, I want to be forgiven of all my sin. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to, I want to follow Jesus. Anybody this morning before, before we close, just lift your hand high because I'd like to pray with you as you make that decision this morning. Anybody this morning going to make that decision? Amen. Praise the Lord. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. Anybody else? If you raised your hand or maybe if you were nervous about raising your hand but you want to make that commitment, just pray with me and say, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I thank you for dying for me on the cross. I don't want to be critical anymore. I don't want to do things my own way anymore. I yield my life to you. Will you rescue me, wash away all my sin and take my life and make it meaningful for you? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.
1: The greatest miracle we will ever witness is that we can know and talk to God. We can hear His voice through Scripture and be confident that He not only sees us and hears us in our lowly estate, but that He actually cares about us. He cared enough to come down in human flesh and be acquainted with our weaknesses. He longs to bless us with His presence when we draw close to Him on His terms. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando.